This is Women in STEM Career and Confidence, the podcast for scientific and professional women who want to restore confidence, make meaningful impact, and balance the things and people that mean most to them. I'm Dr. Hannah Roberts, and I'll be sharing with you insights and inspiration into the mindset and skill set to help you navigate your career and lead powerfully. Today, I talked to Group VP and General Manager of Wiley in New York City, Aurora Martinez. She shares her biggest personal and professional failures and how she normalizes failure in Wiley to build leadership trust. She also talks about how to be intentional about being CEO of your own network of support through shared values and how her daughter's diagnosis caused Aurora to be vocal about being a role model for self-esteem. I loved this interview. I couldn't stop asking questions. I'm sure you will feel the same. I can't wait for you to join us. So let's dig in. So welcome Aurora to the podcast today. I'm so excited to have you here. Yes, I'm here. Thank you so much for, for asking me to join you. I'm very excited to share my experience today. Thank you. And with that in mind, I would love it if you could introduce yourself. Tell us a bit about what you're currently doing. Great. Well, currently I am working for a publishing company it's called Wiley & Sons. They are based in Hoboken, uh, New Jersey. Um, although I like to think that I work in New York City, uh, we have a number of offices all um, you know, around the world. My current role is a uh, group vice president um, and general manager and I am managing a business unit um, where we publish and focus on anything that has to do with business education so that includes finance accounting uh, business marketing so basically anything that you would find in a business school prior to that um, I worked in math and science uh, which is where the connection come here you know is with, with STEM Prior to that, I worked in a video game company, also doing digital. So I have devoted my career to educational publishing, uh, meaning uh, uh, publishing and creating products for teaching and learning to support students from K-12 to higher education, which is what I do now, to also corporate training. And always thinking about technology and digital uh, products that can enhance learning for, for students and that we can make a difference in, in how they, they think about their own learning, right? We know that millennials and other new generations um, learn differently and our materials need to change and adapt so that we can attend to their needs. So that has been in a kind of briefly, um, you know, my, my career path. Um, and along the way, needless to say, I have um, had just about every single job in, in publishing. It started um, with very entry-level positions until now that I have an executive-level position and, and a number of others. So I'll be more than happy to share that career path with you and, and all the challenges and, and great things also that happen along the way. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that introduction. And it's really amazing to hear all the different kind of um, mini careers within the long-term career as well. And I want to take you back right to the very start, because often when I talk to people who have a 
STEM background, there will be a kind of a moment in time when they were young where they first got interested in science. So I wonder what was that moment for you? What can you remember about science growing up? You know, this that's a very interesting question, you know, and 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 I think as as girls, and especially when you're in middle school, you tend to be told, and I don't know, I don't think people say that explicitly actually, but somehow along the way, um, you believe that being in technology um, or being in science or being good at math. Uh, so I was good at math, okay? And I was good at physics and chemistry. Um, but somehow along the way, you you think, well, you know, that's not for me, right? Like the career that are related to STEM are for men and they're not for women, even though you tend to be much better at math or science in school. Like your grades, like my grades were much better in those subjects than in other subjects. And um, and I think you, you, you ended up believing that, you know, well, I should be thinking about something else, right? Um, so I did think about something else. I said, well, maybe I should be a lawyer, right? Or maybe I should be a teacher, which is kind of what led me to, you know, to educational publishing right now. Um, but I always had, I was always good at math. I was always good at science. I always had a, a passion for innovation. Um, so there are all those ingredients that um, really guided my career and where I wanted to go. Uh, but at the very beginning, it was, well, this is not for women, right? And, and I also come from, uh, you know, I don't come from the US, I don't come from the UK, I come from Spain. Um, I was still born during a dictatorship in, in Spain. Um, you know, so my schooling and, you know, kind of those career paths and those opportunities uh, in, in that historical context um, were a little bit different. I was very fortunate to have a mother who was an amazing role model who said, you know, like, just do whatever is going to make you happy. And it's good to be uh, excellent at what you love, but mediocre at what you don't love. So go and find what you love. So having that, that role model and that experience, was, that experience um, and that support was really important. And I have carried that along my entire career. Um, one of the recommendations I always tell people is, and women in particular, and women who are minorities, like I have been in the U.S. a minority, is find a role model. You know, find a good role model that inspires you, that can support you, that you can look up to. Um, if other people have done it, you can do it too. So I think finding that role model, whether it's someone near near you or outside of you, or someone from work or from church or from you know whatever your 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 community is, I think it's really important um, to be inspired to, to do better. Um, because otherwise we tend to say kind of what I thought at some point is, well, you know, like STEM is not for women, right? Or math, you know, girls are not good at math or, you know, although you excel at it, right? Although you excel at it, but society, school, you know, they're like a lot of forces that sometimes um, make you think that, that that's not the career path that you choose. So uh, if, if women love uh, STEM, whether it is technology nowadays, math or science or engineering, like go for it um, and, and find that support group and that role model to, to carry on. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences. And it does sound like what you were up against is a huge amount of implicit bias, like you said, that is woven within our cultures, 
or schooling systems that lead you to believe as the top of the class that that's not the right pathway for you, even though you loved it and you excelled at it. So it's such a powerful force that is invisible within our societies that cause these things. And I really hope and I feel like we're on the the change of a tide that's turning on that. But all of these changes do take time as well. The other thing that I wanted to pick up on was when you talked about role models. So role models are hugely important, particularly having people in your life that can act as mentors, can be coaches, can be sponsors and open doors for you. But there is something that someone said to me once where it's like, you're always looking ahead to who can, you know, who you would love to emulate or who might be able to help. And sometimes we forget that there's a whole heap of people that are looking at us and emulating what we are doing in the world. Um, And so it's great for me to see you in that VP position where you know that other people are looking to you and how you're behaving and wanting to emulate you too. Sometimes we forget that there's people behind as well. Yeah, that's, thank you for pointing that out. I um, I remember I, I did a speech, uh, I was the class president for my um, executive MBA and and when we ended, um, I had to give the, the speech at the end of, of the of the MBA. And one of the things that I said and that I mean it is that being a leader also comes with responsibility. So you have to also be a role model and you have to um, execute you know, your job and, and everything else, right? It's not just about your professional life, but your personal life, which for women, it's very important, right? To always have that balance between the professional and the personal. But being a leader comes with responsibility. And, you know, we talked about earlier a bit about paying forward. And I believe that from the bottom of my heart, you know, you have to pay forward. Just like other people did for me, it's time for me to pay forward and to be a role model and to, um, you know, to give my time, to give you know, the little that I had learned along the way um, and also um, act with um, with the values that that I have lived by and that I, you know, that I believe, um, you know, make make a good leader. Uh, and sometimes that also requires standing up for yourself. Right. Um, and, and that's really, really important. You know, I, it, I always hate to fall into stereotypes, but, but we, we have to call out those things. Right. Um, I, I was uh, listening to one of your podcasts about pay, right? And, and asking for a raise. You know, women, we do have to stand up for ourselves and ask for a raise. Uh, you know, we do have to build a network, which I think is another really important thing for, for women in STEM to do, is we cannot do these things alone. Absolutely. It takes a village, you know, it takes, you know, it takes a network. Um, and we need to ask for help. We are not super women. <laughs> and, you know, it takes, a, you know, it takes a village to raise a child and it takes a network to build a career. And women, generally speaking, without falling into stereotypes, we don't build those networks that our male counterparts oftentimes have, or they build them in because they have more time for whatever reason. But building a network of people that can support you in some ways goes hand in hand with the conversation we had a little bit um, earlier about mentorship and role modeling, right? Well, networking is so important. And and I, owe, I what I have done for myself is building, uh, the question is, who do you want at your table? If you are the CEO of your own life, 
of your own career, who do you want at that table to advise you, to consult with, to motivate you, to engage you, to everything that you can think about? Who do you want at that table with you alongside? Because that's going to be the team that is going to support you when things are rough and also when you have to celebrate. Because there are many, many times where we forget about celebrating our success and we must celebrate our success as well. So building that, ne that network is really important. Um, that's where opportunities come up. Um, that is where you learn about new people. That's where you might learn about a different career path that you had not thought about. Um, and, and I think that is really, really important as well. As, as I said, I cannot um, stop mentioning that women need to build network, networks as well um, and, and cherish th those networks and use them. And I always say women, we need to ask for help. You know, there is nothing wrong when you ask for help. Um, and we sometimes think we can do it all. And, and there is something really important to maybe to also have the humility you now to ask for help. And I think that's such an important point. In fact, with most of my coaching clients, one of the favorite tools is a conversation template called asking for what you need mm -hmm. and a really clear structure in order to do that. And I think that really feeds into the fact that sometimes I and what I what I see a lot in the world is that people try to produce a lot of work to become valuable. And for people, you know, my work speaks for myself. It will prove what I can do whereas actually those that ask and articulate where they're heading what they want the support they need to get there are the ones that you see leapfrogging ahead of perhaps the ones that are actually more talented Um, that's obviously a sweeping statement but it's something yeah. that I've observed in my clients so that advocating for yourself becomes important and I love your analogy of CEO of your own boardroom because I talk about this both um, well, my version is internally, and you're talking about an external facing network. So just to give some distinction around that, being CEO of your own boardroom. So each of us all have these distinct, discrete parts of us. Um, I call them different selves, and we talk in this language all the time. Like, there's a part of me that wants to go for a walk at lunchtime. Oh, but there's another part that's seen that I've got 500 emails, and I really should work through lunch and eat my lunch at the desk depending upon which part is strongest determines which action you're going to take. So I like to sort of separate out these pleasers, pushers, perfectionists, protector, controllers, special selves, ordinary selves, the whole array of these different selves and put them like seats, CEO of a boardroom of selves. Where you're at the center of it, do I choose to enlist my pusher and work through lunch or do I choose a more being self and actually go and take the walk? What do I choose to do? But when we're getting run by these different selves, it's almost like the choice has been taken out of our hands. So I'd like to bring that analogy now to your external version of being CEO of your own boardroom. So what are your top tips for filling the seats with the right people for your boardroom? How do we do that? Yeah, great, great question. Um, for me personally, the number one thing that I look or in people is that we share values. Um, I, that's really important. I chose uh, my business school based on values. Um, do well, and you know, <laughs> doing business and being successful is not only about making money. It's also about doing something 
good for the world and and, and do you know and, and do well right you have to do well but you also have to do good so that that part is really important to me right I, I'm not sure to what extent I would want someone who is complete opposite you know and shares different values um, so so sharing those values is something that I um, that I look at very closely and that that it's just it, it's personally it's important to me that is not to say that I want someone who has my own point of view. On the contrary, the other criteria that I look for is people who have different points of views to mine so that I can grow and enrich and look at the world differently. Um, I strive to be a global leader. And by being a global leader means that you need to think about uh, people who come from different cultural backgrounds, religion, you know, different really I mean the, you know the, the, the different uh, colors right that are out there um, and in order to lead people in that way you also need to have a very open mind and you need to understand other points of views that is just not mine so although the values is a non-negotiable <laughs> uh, the points of view is a negotiable right and that's what makes me um, think about solutions or or think about other um, ways of doing things that on my own, you know, it wouldn't come naturally um, to me. So that's another another criteria. And then um, I think the third one is I want people who are smarter than me <laughs> and, who, <laughs> and who, know, who know a lot more than I do, <laughs> um, so that I can, you know, so that I can learn from them. Uh, so that that's the that's the other part. I'm not. I, I always say probably the biggest, and, and I and I hope to get that one day. I do it. Is I would love to report to someone who I mentored. You know, <laughs> there is nothing that gives you more satisfaction than you know when the you know when the student is better than the master, right, or better than the teacher. Um, so that gives me a lot of satisfaction. But with that, uh, I think it comes the humility of knowing that I don't know it all. They are, you know, I'm strong in many areas, but not in others. And how do I bring people, you know, by my side that are going to complement what I don't know, or that are going to enhance what I know, right? And that's where the different point, the different points of views come into place as well. If I have a point of view and someone has a different point of view, can you make me better, right? Mm -hmm. And and can I learn from, you know, from you know, from someone else who knows something completely different, you know, different skill set from what I have. So I think that's the other criteria is having people who are smarter than me and who are completely different from what I bring to the table with different skill set. Um, and I don't expect to do it all <laughs> or, to, or to know it all, but I do have a lot of curiosity for learning new things. So I always get really, really passionate about, oh, you know, like I remember when SEO, you know, the search um, engine optimization. I had no idea what that was. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to learn everything there is about that, right? So, you know, getting together with someone who knew about that and working alongside and guided them, you know, it was this young kid um, who was amazing, you know, and I learned so much from him. <laughs> he learned from me, but I also learned a lot from him. So I think we need to, to understand that change is constant. I am in technology uh, and technology changes all the time. So I have to be very open to learning constantly. You know, what I know now, probably six months from now is obsolete. So if I didn't have that curiosity to better myself, to learn um, what's new out there, and I cannot be on top of everything, and that's where you need to bring people by your side that can complement you and know other things that, that I don't. I love that. And I 
can really feel some of the crossover of our own value system as well in this conversation because I have this vision where when women and um, we have a and then having a huge amount of diversity at senior leadership level will result in solutions that are fit for all members of society because all voices get heard as well so I really feel that crossover and you talked about having shared values and making sure that first and foremost there's an impact that they you're doing good in some way but you've also talked about that inclusivity and also learning being really important to you and um, one of the things that's the big tide that's turning at the moment is the amount of millennials that are in the workforce right now and um, there's a really great report by Gallup, How Millennials Live and Work. I'm sure that's the title. And I could be wrong in terms of percentages, but I'm sure they said in five years, 86% of the workforce is going to be made up of millennials. That's a huge shift. Mm -hmm. And with that comes some differences in how they want to be managed and led by the senior leadership team. And one of them is this big shift between instead of working on our weaknesses all the time, they want to work and get coached on their strengths. And you're there talking about beautifully about bringing in teams where um, they can um, work to their strengths and you can work to your strengths and get better at them, but also get expert opinion from other people who have strengths in areas that perhaps are weaknesses for you. And that enables people to spend more time in flow and enjoying and loving the work that they're doing. And you talked about, okay, I've got all these people working to their strengths around the table. I want them to be able to speak up. So my question for you is, how do you create an environment? Because I've been in environments before where I felt it very difficult to speak up. How do you create the environment that everyone feels able to say what they want to say without fear? Yeah, and... I, I love this question. I have been very intentional about uh, my own training uh, on managing and leading millennials. Uh, prior to this job, I worked at this video game company where it was a startup. And just by the nature of it, um, I think like 99%, um, probably except for me and the founders, <laughs> uh, were all millennials or, you know, or like, you know, 20, you know, right out of college. Some of them actually, the programmers were even teenagers because they were so good. Oh, um, wow. We hired them, you know, in as, as they were um, getting their, their degrees. So, so I, I have thought a lot about this. Um, certainly, it requires a change from who we are as leaders and how we need to manage based on our own belief system. Uh, and that's, that's, the biggest, that's the biggest change um, that I had to do or the biggest transformation I had to go through. You know, understanding that we are in a, in, a, in a world where in many companies we actually have five generations. So although you're, you know, it's true that by five years or so, there will be 80% or whatever the, the percentage of millennials, we are leading people that fall into five different generations. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have people in my team that are about to retire and people who are 21 and everything in between, right? And here comes the flexibility, I, see, I think, as a leader and understanding those different points of views, right? You have to, uh, it's almost like differentiated instruction. You have to be a, a different leader in some ways without uh, negotiating your values, right? That's why the value system is, is, is 
what makes everything equal, right? And plain. But then you need to manage differently to all those different generations because they need different things. In particular to millennials. Um, and, and I want to put in the context of those five different generations that we are managing, because many of my colleagues in executive level positions, they are managing you know, five generations at the same time. Um, it's to me, it's creating a culture of failure. It is okay to fail. And for many millennials, they don't, just because of how they have been raised in that historical context again, they don't feel comfortable with failure. They have not failed. You know, we have not allowed them to fail as a society. So in, in the companies and in our businesses and in our teams, we need to allow for failure. And we need to say, you know, if you fail, it's okay. Let's take it as a learning experience. And that's one thing that I love to do is, well, let's do a pilot or let's do this. And we're going to, there's a high chance that you're going to fail, right? <laughs> and, you know, and when you fail, you learn, right? I have failed also, you know, in, in, in my career and I have learned from that. So I put myself as an example as well. You know, I did this, it didn't work out. You know, but I didn't like go out crying. It's like, well, what did I learn from it? You know, let me start over or let me think about something else or simply it was just a bad idea. Like there is nothing wrong with admitting that something is just a bad idea and you shouldn't pursue it, you know, so move on, right, to something else. So creating a culture where failing is okay, um, I think it's important, very important to me. And the other part is um, that I do very consciously is also call on people, right? Because um, when you are in a, in a meeting, again, you have the person who is very outspoken or the one who is shy. Uh, we have, and I have done this for a number of years now, it just happens to be one of the assessments at Wiley, it's called DISC. And maybe you're familiar with that. And, and mm -hmm. once you understand that people come with different strengths and with different ways of approaching their lives and their work, um, and that if you are a D dominant and you're talking with someone who is an I influence, uh, that that dynamic is different um, as opposed to working with someone who is very much an introvert, right? Uh, when you understand those dynamics, I think it's very important as leaders that you learn to talk to people differently um, and you give them what, you know, what they need and you meet them where they are at. And then I'm very intentional at calling people out and involving people, right? Sometimes I think it's better to be redundant in involving people in a meeting if they're going to learn to give them that opportunity to speak up. Um, so I would say those, those two things, I think we have that responsibility to understand who we are talking to, because you have the millennials, and then you have people that are individuals. And as individual people, they come with different needs. So not all millennials have this, are the same. Not so all generations are the same, right? Within that, there is a huge comment. And that is where the flexibility, where the listening, you know, I think it's very important to listen to people. Um, one thing that I always say when I go into a meeting is, you know, I am not coming here with an agenda or with a decision, uh, but I expect to leave the meeting with a decision um, by having everyone contribute towards that decision and help me, uh, you know, make the, the, the right and the best decision. But I don't go into a meeting with my mind made up, right? I, I think that would, that, that would defeat the purpose of having a meeting, right? Then I would be just telling you what to do, you know, but I go into a meeting with the expectation that everyone is, to, is going to collaborate, is going to speak up, so that collectively, and I can, and I have the tools to make the right decision when I leave the meeting. So it's a shift uh, in how you think about it and how you approach, and uh, and also being very explicit that that is my expectation. So I very clearly say my expectation is that 
you know, I need to leave this meeting with a decision on X, Y, or Z. And that is what we are going to do here. So I expect you to speak up and I expect you to collaborate. Sometimes we don't say that explicitly. You know, we we expect that they will know that's what you want, uh, but you know, no one has a crystal ball to know what is in my mind. <laughs> um, so since I know that's not possible, I try to be very explicit as to what my expectations are from my team. And I have no doubt that that really helps people understand what is expected of them. If we don't tell people, they have no idea. No idea. Um, I'm also a big fan of assessment tools to look at strengths as well. There's lots out there. You've talked about DISC. There is obviously Myers-Briggs and Insights, and I use a profiling tool called Talent Dynamics. But it is being able to recognize that each person is individual and will respond differently um, to you. And we need to communicate as well in a specific way with specific individuals. I love that. I think you've got some really great tools in place to enable this um, collaborative working, but the foundational piece of everything you've talked about there is trust and safety. Because without trust, there is not the safety to be able to speak up, even if called upon, because if the trust isn't there, they're not gonna say the thing that they really wanna say. And having that culture of being able to fail, fail hard, fail fast, and it being accepted is huge. And a while back, I was creating a workshop for AstraZeneca and they, they said to me, we want to do this workshop around failure. So I looked into it and there was this thing called the CV of failures that was on the internet. And I was like, I'm going to create one of these CV of failures. So my, I'm going to share my top failure or one of my many failures. Um, it's out there on the internet for everyone to see. In fact, I think it should be you, you hand in your normal CV and then a CV of failures to show how much you fail and how much you're open to growth and learning. That's fine. And then I'm going to ask you to share your biggest failure as well. Okay. So I'm going to choose one from my PhD in organometallic chemistry. So I had uh, just started this PhD. I kind of was working with air sensitive chemicals. So every time that you use something, you have to put put it under an inert atmosphere. It has to be under nitrogen. Um, if you don't get this right, it sets on fire. Everything sets on fire because it's chemistry. And <laughs> um, that's the nature of the game. So I'd gone to a collaborators in Durham University for the whole week to make some new material because they had specific expertise. And the morning that I went into the lab, my mum had just called me to say, oh, your dad's being taken away in an ambulance. I can't talk now. I, I'll call you when I can. So I got into the lab, but my mind was elsewhere. Mind was completely elsewhere. And I turned the tap to turn the nitrogen on. And instead I sucked the whole bottle of methyl lithium into the shrink line. And the whole thing involved many different professors that wore face shields. And I had to follow it being taken in a bomb disposable proof room for the weekend where they had to film it and look at it and monitor it and it was all so very shameful and awful um, <laughs> and I'm just the PhD student going oh I might have made a little mistake um, but what I learned from that really was if you're distracted you cannot do things that are really really important you can't make good decisions you can't function properly so we really need to be clear about how we're showing up in the workplace before we start work. And is that the best course of action for you on that particular day? That was just one of many things, Aurora. 
yeah. on my list of failures. <laughs> but what about you? What's been a no, failure for you? Thank you, you for feel- sharing that. I, I'm, I'm glad there was no collateral damage, you know, on that. <laughs> you no, know, no I mean, hurt, so that was good. <laughs> no one got hurt. It was video monitored in, in this room where the roof can come off. It's like, yeah, when I say no, bomb-proof no. room, it means it's okay with explosions. Um, it didn't set on fire in the end. Good, good. And it, it just could needed worse. cleaning It could have been worse. <laughs> My mind was in worst case scenario this right, right, right. On fire um, down the corridor. But the reality was that it wasn't that bad. It was more just the shameful walk of shame behind a percep- you know, a procession of professors. Yes, it, it's my my experiment. Yes, it's me. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm going to share two examples. Okay. Um, it, it, one more at a personal level and then one um, a, a professional example. So years ago, um, now we all talk about eBooks, but many years ago, there was no such a thing as an eBook. And, you know, with this curiosity of mine, I said, you know, I want to do an eBook. And it was like, you know, and I was like adamant about it and, you know, the technology wasn't there. So it was like a very expensive uh, proposition. <laughs> um, I got it through, uh, I got the approval to do it. Um, and I still remember, uh, you know, after a year of making the case for the, inve- the investment case, the business plan, the technology that was not there, you know, I was just like adamant, you know, that the way to go was, you know, with eBooks and, published the ebook and I sold 17 one seven um, copies of that ebook after all the amount of time that that it took away from me, the teams. And I will never forget that um, as, as one of the biggest failures that I've had at work. Um, good thing that I learned from that is that I wasn't penalized for it. Okay, it was a huge investment. It was a failure because we only sold 17 copies of that ebook. Um, I learned a lot along the process and that probably put me in the path of focusing more on digital. So there was a lot of positive things from that, but that was a huge failure. And that is where I learned, you know, I was given a pass <laughs> as a young person. So um, so that's, that's what I learned about failure when we weren't talking about failure like we are talking about it right now, you know, as, as you very eloquently put it. So that, that's one um, that, that I still remember, um, you know, my 17 copy. I think that was the worst sales ever, you know, of anything that I have ever done in my life as a, you know, as a publisher. Um, and then another one at a more personal level. Um, and, th- and this is not a regret necessarily. And I don't know if it's a failure, something in between. Mm-hmm. Um, a regret and a, and a failure. But um, two times in my life, I was given a promotion that I declined. For several reasons, right? That's at a personal level. I didn't feel I could take on additional challenges. So two times uh, in my life, I had to say no to 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 two promotions, and I consider that a failure in some ways because probably everything that I learned before and that we started this conversation with of building that network, having someone to support you, asking for help. Uh, you know, get, ask for what you need so that you could access that promotion that I deserved. Um, and I had to say no. Um, so I, I consider that a personal failure of some, you know, of some ways. And 
a regret sometimes. Yeah. And other times, you know, I have to live with it, right? It's a decision that I made. Um, I made it for, you know, for personal reasons, but I learned also from, from it. So when the third one came about, <laughs> and there have been others, you know, after that one, um, thankfully, I did learn, you know, that I needed to change some things in my life to proceed with those promotions, and I did take them. So um, anyway, so I just wanted to share, you know, to share that, uh, not, not uh, some of my proudest moments, but, you know, it's, it's what, you know, is what I did, so. Thank you. Thank you for sharing both of those examples. I know that they will be so powerful to everybody else listening online, you know, VP, a VP at Wiley admitting to failure so openly and honestly. And that's what creates the trust. I heard there that it was both a failure for you and also a regret that you didn't um, take those promotions that you rightly deserved at that time. And sometimes there can be huge power in the choice. Mm -hmm. And like you said, sometimes it can be because there is something happening within us where we don't feel able to. And that's more of a, that causes the regretful feelings about it. So I just wondered if um, it might be appropriate at this time to talk a little bit more about confidence in yourself. Mm -hmm. So was that a moment in time where, you didn't have the confidence in yourself to do that? Or was it more of an external, I don't have the support or the capacity to be able to? I think it wasn't the confidence about doing the job because I had been looking forward to those promotions. Um, it truly was, I didn't have the support. Mm -hmm. um, I was a young mom with two little ones and it required me more travel. It just required a number of things that I couldn't give at that time which is the other thing that I always tell women is like, choose your partner well, um, <laughs> you know, it is a partnership. So I, I think it was more, I didn't, I didn't feel I had that support and I didn't ask for it. So I take my own, I am accountable for that as well. I didn't ask for it. I thought it was my responsibility and only my responsibility to, to do certain things. And um, and once you get to that point in your life where you say, well, you know, this is not only my responsibility, you know, it is a shared responsibility. There's a lot of cultural things here. I hope that, <laughs> uh, you know, women today don't have the same baggage that I that I had, uh, but I did have it. That's just my story. And <laughs> and I did have that baggage. Um, so so it wasn't a matter of confidence. I think it was more a matter of support. Yes. Now, one, one thing that I will say related to confidence um, is self-esteem. Okay. Um, so I, I feel I am a very confident, I have always been very confident. You know, I, I went to another country, I learned another, another language, right? I mean, I, you know, I don't have a lack of confidence in myself and my ability. Um, and what I don't know, I learn. So I, it's not a matter of confidence, but I think there is a level of self-esteem that mm -hmm. we also need to work on. And, and for me, that point came when my daughter has um, a condition that has no cure. And her doctor at the time told me, um, you know, the best thing you can do for her is to make sure that she, have, that she has good self-esteem. Ah. And, at the, you know, my daughter is 20 now. This was 70 years ago when she first got sick. And, and I took that to heart. And I said, you know, what I need to do is to have good self-esteem so my daughter can see me as a role model 
and she can grow up to have great self-esteem. And, and that part is just as important for women and for women who are leading. We need to have good self-esteem as well. And sometimes we don't talk about that. We talk about confidence and we're confident in our ability. Some, you know, mm -hmm. can always work on that and improve on that. But part two to that is having good self-esteem um, and thinking good about yourself. Um, and don't let other people, you know, tell you otherwise. Like when we talked about earlier, you know, girls are not good at math, right? <laughs> that, yeah. can, you know, that can really hurt your self-esteem, right? Um, and, you know, and other comments along the way that we have all heard <laughs> over, you know, over the years. So I, I would pair confidence with self-esteem and, you know, moving, moving forward. But in my case, my story was more that support. Um, yeah. that I did. So I take my part of responsibility on that. <laughs> and it's really interesting how you are being very intentional about your self-esteem as well, as I am also with my children. So um, self-esteem comes from taking actions in order to feel feelings about yourself. So I'm always really conscious that I say to my children, no, Mummy's going for a swim this morning. Mummy needs her own time to be able to be fit and healthy, to be able to show up for you in the best possible way, because I know it's going to make me feel really good at the end of it. And just being really vocal about having that own time, because if it, if it was up to my daughter, I would probably never leave the house. And I would just be at her back and call the whole time, holding, right. you know, ready there to play whatever game that she wanted. And often she's like, you're not swimming this morning. Yeah. Um, and that kind of That's thing. Right. So, I, I think we often have to do actions to demonstrate our self-esteem. So can you give us an example of um, an action that you take to demonstrate self-esteem? Mm -hmm. mm. Well, you, you I, I kind of mentioned this before, um, and I think it's about being very articulate about what you need and being vulnerable. So... To your point, right? Like you tell your kids, you know, like I need to go swimming. Um, I also am very uh, articulate to say, you know, this is what I need in this particular time. Like I need to step out or I need, you know, two hours to myself or, you know, and also I think it's about being very explicit as to what hurts you, right? Without taking it. So you said something to me that was hurtful or you said something to me that didn't sit right. So let's talk through it, right? So I'm also very intentional about those things when someone makes a comment that, or maybe I could be that I misinterpreted, right? But rather than thinking about it, thinking about it, and you know, and just spend like weeks, you know, trying to figure out what that person said or meant, or but at the end of the day, it's like you know, it made me feel bad, you know, in some way or another, and my I I feel that I demonstrate that I have good self-esteem when I crush it right away and I have the conversation right away and I tell you right away. And I do this at work as well. It's like, you know, that didn't sit well. I, I don't know what you meant by it, but let's just have a discussion about it. And I do the same with my friends and with my family. Like I don't let it like go on, you know, for days or, you know, it's like, what, what happened? You know, let's talk about it. Um, I read a book a long time ago. It was the one minute manager. Okay. And that, you know, it's like, if something happens, like address it in one minute and move on, right? Uh, and the same thing with my kids, like you do something wrong, you know, like we'll, we'll address it, you know, like you should not eat, you know, all that sugar. So that's it, you know, let's move on, you know, let's move on, right? Because then we can be talking about, you know, uh, 
all the bad things. So I think it's about having also a positive attitude um, towards that. And, and I am also very intentional about that. Um, mm. Which is, you know, something makes me feel bad. You know, I don't, like, I need to, to change so that I turn that into positive and then move on. So that's what I tend to do a lot. Um, I, I don't know if it's part of the self-esteem or not, but it makes me feel better. It's like, you know, whatever makes me feel bad is like, let's crush it right away, address it. And then let's go into the things that make you feel good. Um, uh, yeah. You know, and that makes you just move on to the next thing. Um, so um, I, I don't know if I've answered your question well about the self-esteem because I think it's broad and, and, and what, you know, what do we mean by it? But um, oh no, I think it's a really important point and many of my clients describe and this is one of my arch nemesis in my life which is making up stories about what people are saying and thinking about me and blah 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 all the stories and actually being able to just address things in the moment and let stuff go is really helpful um, there was one pit that I really wanted to tease out of that and that was um, the process of what um, I call reporting the weather so for you, it's that being that one minute manager, being able to say, when that happened, this was the effect or that doesn't sit well with me. Reporting the weather, um, I often talk about it with my clients, is taking the blame out of those statements. So even if, and I'll give an example from my home life, even if it's my child, one of my children who's been up five times in the night, or there's been a whole heap of stuff that's gone on and you're super tired in the morning, we need to report the weather on that. So um mummy didn't sleep well and that means that I'm a little bit more tired than normal which means that you might expect um some a little bit grumpiness and I might be more short-tempered than I am normally because I didn't have as much sleep as I would have liked so it's not saying you there you caused me to feel that way so it, it kind of takes the blame out of it reporting the weather is just stating um this is just how it is this is how I feel right now and that can also build self-esteem, but it helps other people to connect the dots for themselves as well, which is also helpful, um, particularly with my children. Who then it wasn't me, it was him. And it's like, no, we're not putting blame on it. Right. That's just how it is. Um, but yeah, I just thought I would share the reporting of the weather. I love that. I, I love that. And, um, and I love your example. Uh, it kind of brought me back to when I come back from a trip that typically you're very tired, you know, sometimes you, are, you know, you take that red eye because <laughs> you think it was a good idea at some point when you book the flight and then you realize this was a bad idea. Um, but then you get to whatever you're going at seven in the morning and then you have a whole day ahead of you where you are tired and, and it, you know, and it takes a toll. And this is where I go back to, you know, you need to ask for help. And you need to say, you know, I am tired today or I, you know, or I need a nap, you know, at four, you know, I don't take naps, but, you know, if that's what you need uh, or just really speaking up, like you're just tired, you know, and I'm going to need, you know, some time to recharge. And so. that communication will change everything. So I would love to ask you one final question, if that's okay today. <laughs> and I'm torn between past and future, past and future, past and future. Um, I'm going to go with future. So what is your vision for the world, let's say two generations from now, how would you like things to be? You talked about one of your values being doing good in the world. So what's the big difference that you hope to see in the world two generations from now? 
That's a big question. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow, the pressure is on. <laughs> um, <laughs> what do I see? I am in education. Okay, that's what I have devoted my, you know, my life to. <clears throat> I think education and being educated uh, changes the world and is going to make us all better. Um, what I hope in two generations from now, um, for men and women, because we haven't talked much about men, but you know, we have to engage men in supporting women. Because like I always say, we don't know where the cure to cancer is going to come from. We don't know if it's going to come from a little girl in Nigeria, you know, who has no running water at home. But if we give her the opportunity to have an education, maybe, you know, that person, that little girl might find the cure to cancer or the cure to Alzheimer's or, you know, the new next uh, Netflix for that matter, right? <laughs> that helps us, you know, uh, entertain for so many hours, right, during COVID. <laughs> thank goodness right for um for technology during COVID so so what I hope is that we will improve education and we will close that education gap um that we have uh, that continues to widen we don't continue to shorten that education gap for that very reason um and then I also hope that it's just not about making money we have the environment to be thinking about and the new generations are so strong on that i admire that because <laughs> we you know we weren't you know raised thinking that way and that's changed so do well and be you know it's like you can't you, you need to do well <laughs> and you need to do something for the world and i think these new generations think about those things we need to give them the tool to execute we absolutely do. From the, you know, it's not about having the vision. It's about executing against that vision. It is about, you know, speaking up against the establishment, um, you know, to get it done. And yeah. and that's where I think the new generations are pushing hard. And, and we need to train them and we need to teach them to, to speak up. And many of the things that we talked about today, you know, that self-esteem, it's okay if you fail one time, like don't give up on, you know, on your cause. And we need to build those educational systems that are going to support them in, in that process. Um, and just understanding that, you know, the way we learned uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago is not the way that they're learning right now. Uh, and it's not the way that they will learn. So we need to adapt. And, um, and I hope that we do. <laughs> we manage to do it at all, at all levels. Beautiful. I know I put you on the spot, but that is a big, bold vision and it ties up everything so beautifully that we talked about today. So thank you so much for joining me, Aurora. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Women in STEM Career and Confidence. To get further support in your journey, join me in Breakthrough Unleashed on Facebook.